Come on in. We'll get going here. Again, there's some Bibles in the back. If you don't own a Bible, you can have it. That's yours to have. Uh, and yeah, just know that's, that's there for you. Uh, I probably get the most questions about our church about doing uh, a fellowship break uh, during the middle of the service uh, and go, why do you do this? And I really say because it is part of worship uh, to be able to uh, be in fellowship with one another. How do we know if we love God is how we love one another. And it's a way that we can fellowship with one another. It's also a time, if there's ever any issues or problems with each other, that we can resolve them and talk about them, hopefully, or set up a time that you can talk about them. It's good to be able to reconcile with one another, especially before we come to the Lord's table. So this, I encourage you guys. Uh, it's, uh, the fellowship time is more than just having snacks, but it's also time to show our love and uh, be able to show forgiveness to one another as God has shown us um, forgiveness. Well, Heather Quinlan, she's a, a New Yorker, and uh, she decided that she wanted to find out her heritage. She wanted to find out, is there any royalty in my background? Uh, is there anyone famous? Is there anyone that I should know I'm related to? Or something unique about how we came over to the United States? So Heather did her research on her genealogy, and uh, she was all ready to find out that, you know, she's related to the queen or something like that. And uh, she found out that her great-great-great-grandfather killed a man in a bar fight in 1868. <laughs> and then she found out two generations before that, uh, there was a murderous feud uh, about uh, a scandal of elopement in her family. And one of uh, her forebears got hung for it. And another escaped from jail when the jailer left the cell um, door open. Lisa's saying Heather was pretty shocked. And uh, she kind of responded, well, I, my family's not really violent now, I guess. But she did kind of reason to say, you know, my family has some colorfulness and some fierceness. Uh, maybe it has come through that uh, through the years. Well, genealogies, if you don't know, has become a pretty lucrative uh, business nowadays. And uh, people more and more want to find out their roots their family heritage, they're curious about facts about how their family got uh, to where they are. And the thing is, though, as much as we might do research of our genealogy and family trees and find out where we came from, it really, if we find out, it really doesn't change our social standing. You know, it doesn't change our financial state. Uh, when we find out maybe our great-great-great-grandfather was like in the Civil War, it doesn't make us think, oh, now I can become a general because I have that heritage. No, it doesn't work that way nowadays. It might make us think, oh, I have maybe leadership in my blood or this kind of gift or something like that. But it really doesn't change kind of social standings in financial states. But here in the Bible, at the beginning kind of, of Luke, in the third chapter, when we begin the crucial point of Jesus' ministry, we have a long genealogy. Why? Why is it there? What is its importance? It's more than just curiosity. It's more than just to find out Jesus' roots. But what it does, it displays Jesus' credentials to the man to save what is lost. This genealogy displays Jesus' credentials, and it shows him to be the man 
to save what is lost. I must be crazy to read this, but I'm going to do it. And uh, so, you know, I, I use my trusty Hebrew Bible, but more than that, um, I use uh, for Bible names, but also uh, my book, Pronouncing Bible Names. Uh, so that has also been used for this uh, today. It's not in the bibliography, so I have it out. Uh, and I'm going to try. I have some uh, pronunciation stuff here, too. So um, bear with me as we read these 77 names. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Matt, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmedam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph the son of Jonam, the son of Elikam, the son of Mila, the son of Mena, the son of Matata, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Selah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadad, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Rhea, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Muhaluliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, can we learn from a genealogy? Teach us. Show us. Why do you show such things? Why do you put such things in your word? Let it inform us. Let it equip us. In your son's name. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, there's good news. You come at the right time. We are starting the book of Luke, and we're going to be going through it for 20 weeks. Uh, the book of Luke is one of the four Gospels, Gospel meaning the good news, and it tells the good news of Jesus Christ. Luke is 24 chapters, the longest of all the Gospels. If I did justice to the book of Luke, if I wanted to do every single pericope, which is a section, it would take me probably one and a half to two years to go through the whole book. That said, I'm not going to do that, okay? Um, we are instead going to go through the book, but I'm only going to go through certain sections. I'll go through a chapter a week, a section each chapter. So what is going to be helpful for us as a church is this, that you can read through the book of Luke yourself. I encourage you, 
Start maybe reading one or two chapters every single week, and that will get you to Memorial Day. And on top of that, I would encourage you in this, that our community groups will be studying some passages that I might not be studying or going over together as a sermon. So you can be able to study those passages with a community group, which are starting this next week. And so I encourage you, if you want to know more about the Bible, if you want to know how do I apply it, if I want to know how do I live this out with others, community groups are a great way to be able to be involved in that. Again, those are listed in the worship guide. I encourage you to take a look at those groups. Also, uh, the book of Luke is uh, two acts, okay? One, Luke, and two, acts. Yeah, pun intended. Acts. Um, and Luke looks at the book um, when it comes to Jesus' life, his death and resurrection. And Acts looks at the early church and how it grew and how church planters and missionaries were sent out. Again, we are just going to be looking at the book of Luke. Well, so you know, are you worried maybe Dan's just going to um, nitpick sections that he likes or ones that are interesting? I hope this week shows you I'm not scared, okay? I will take on anything, even if it's obscure and hard, and let the community groups maybe deal with the ones that are a little bit more popular. Uh, so again, we're going to be looking at the genealogy. Luke, so you know, is a physician, a Gentile, uh, and he cared deeply about historical credibility, the credibility of this book. In the beginning of the book of Luke, in verses 1 through 3, we see who Luke is writing to. Theophilus. He's not just writing to him, but he's writing to the church at large. But he is writing to this group, Theophilus and the Gentiles, those that were outside of Israel. And he's telling Theophilus, I want you to see an eyewitness account. I want you to see a credible account. I want you to see an historical account of Jesus. You know, it does beg the question for us. Why do we do this? Why do we go through the Bible? Why read such obscure passages in Dewey on Sunday? I mean, is it because, oh yeah, we're a Christian church and this is our text, so we read that kind of narrative? Or, you know, we've got to make things interesting on Sunday morning and fill some time, so that's what we have to do. I don't think that's all of it. Yes, it, this is the Christian narrative. Yes, it is interesting, I hope, even the genealogy, which I hope to show you this morning. But more than that, it's true. It's historical. And it tells how humanity can be saved. The Bible is just not a good narrative. Not just interesting, it's true. It's historical. And it tells us how we can be saved. <laughs> this last week, this very question came up with a good friend um, that ticked up when we talked about truth and uh, talked about how do we know anything. And how do you know? How do you know? There's so many options out there. How do you know? guy was really questioning Christianity. And, you know, there's many different routes I go to that question. I'm just going to pick one today, one that we talked about when we were together. I said, well, let's just say, did Jesus exist? Was he an historical figure that died on the cross and rose from the dead? That is tangible. 
that is real. That is something that happens. And then, you know, it's usually a dialogue, so I got some kickback from him. He said, you know, there's really no major historical evidence that Jesus existed. He might have existed, but all these stories of miracles, raising from the dead, all this, there's no historical evidence for that. And then the dialogue goes a little bit like this. The Bible is historical and shares about what Jesus has done. And then the conversation goes back. It says, you can't take the Bible for real historical facts. Listen, the Bible was written trying to build up the church many, many years after Christ. These apostles, these disciples, you know, they basically wanted their follower to get some cred. So, you know, 50, 60, 100 years later, the early church made up stories about Jesus to make them feel good and to start this new religion. That's not a new thought. That's something that's been in conversation probably uh, for a long time. And I just want to talk against that. Maybe you have that same thought yourself. Maybe you have friends that think that. I just want to, I want to press back against that this morning. And if I'm not being fair, you please let me know. I do not want to create an us versus them. I just want to be able to push back and maybe against those views this morning. So I just want to say a little bit this before we kind of get into the passage about historical reliability of Luke. Luke was most definitely written probably in the early 60s, in the mid-60s. Part of the reason it is is because, again, he wrote Acts. And the Acts ends not with Paul's death, but Paul still going to Rome. And the thing is, Paul died in the 60s. And also, Rome took over Israel and just destroyed Jerusalem. None of that is shown at all in Luke or Acts. Also, Luke does this. He has eyewitness accounts of people that were around Jesus and gives names. People that were still existent and around. That people could check. If this really is true, I can go and talk to this person or that person to make sure it is. Also, we have four different accounts, four Gospels, confirming the same message of what Jesus was doing. From multiple manuscripts, more manuscripts than almost any historical record at that time. Actually, yes, more than any historical record at that time. More than Greek history or anything else. And I want to make one other argument that I made to my friend as we talked back and forth. If the church decided we need to prop up this idea of Jesus, we need to make him credible many, many years later. Why did not the writers like Luke address issues that the church was facing later in its history? For example, circumcision. It was a major issue in the church at that time, whether people should be circumcised or not. If it was an issue at that time, why didn't they insert in Jesus' voice, this is what I say about circumcision and who should be circumcised and who should not? The same when it comes to tongues and spiritual gifts. Something, again, Jesus does not talk about directly. If the church really cared about those things, and it was written much later, and they wanted Jesus to prop up who they were, why didn't they insert that language there? I posit this. The reason they didn't, because what they recorded about Jesus is what actually happened. Okay? Sir William Ramsey, he was an early um, textual critic, 
And his uh, goal was to convince people that Luke was a poor historian. But after much research, he found this. He was led to the facts to see that Luke was a good historian, that he followed good archaeology, that what he was saying was history. Last argument. This is really, I, I try to get at the core of my friends. What's really deep? What's behind all of this that he's saying against Christianity? To just throw out the Bible in general. And this is where we kind of got at the root of it. Okay? The root of it was, was this. It was, if anyone says something happens supernaturally, or there is a force bigger than ourselves, it automatically cannot be taken as credible. Because Luke was a Christian, because he said supernatural things happened, because Jesus rose from the dead, who cares how historical he was? You have to just throw it out altogether. I made my argument to my friend. That statement that you are making, that belief, is a faith statement. You are making a philosophical argument. You are saying because those things can happen, it cannot be true. Okay? And I want to challenge you on that. Just as I have a faith that it did happen, and I also have evidence that it did through the Bible, you are too making a statement of faith. Now the question is, what is more true? Please hear me. This is not loading bullets in a gun so you can mow down your friends. That is not. This, this friend I've had, I've had him over dinner for two years. Okay? These are long conversations done with patience and love and forbearing. Okay? I encourage you, there is evidence for Jesus. Challenge your friends, but do it in love. Okay? You know, I'll use these apologetic things every once in a while because maybe some of you have those questions too. And I hope it would help in your conversations with others or your own conversations that you're having thinking about Christianity. Well, this day and age doesn't have its only doubts. There were doubts back then. And there were doubts about Jesus at that time that Luke was writing, especially in the Gentile world. And especially among the Judaizers at that time in the Gentile world. How could the Messiah, the Savior, be crucified? How could you follow a Messiah that died upon a cross? And again, I think this is why Luke inserts the genealogy. He wants to give Jesus credentials, credibility to his ministry and what he has done. Look with me. Verse 23. It starts. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Now, 30 years old gave a lot of credibility to a teacher at that time, a teacher, a prophet, or a priest. Um, Joseph um, started his work in Egypt at age 30. The Levites started their service um, in the temple at age 30. Ezekiel the prophet started his ministry at age 30. David started his reign as king at age 30. Here they're saying Jesus is following a line of those that are prophets, priests, and kings, and he too is following that kind of lineage. Also, Jesus is not simply a popular Messiah. He's not someone that has some populist message or some teacher or some guru that finally has got enough followers around him that you've got to take him at his word. No, he comes 
from divine lineage. He comes from the plan of God. And here this genealogy shows that. It shows that Jesus comes from the lineage of David. Now back then, genealogy was very important. It decided whether you could buy land, sell land, whether you're allowed to be involved in royalty. We see that in the, the book of Ruth, um, the ability to buy land and what it meant to be a part of a family and how important it was. If you didn't have a name, how little it meant. So the first thing that anyone would do, probably to discredit whether Jesus was the Messiah, whether he was king, would say, is he a king at all? Does he even follow that lineage? And you will see in the Gospels, nowhere do the Sadducees and the Pharisees, those that question Jesus the most, ever made that statement of Jesus does not belong to king heritage, to royal lineage. And that is why when Jesus walks into Jerusalem the week before his um, crucifixion, people yell, Hosanna in the highest. Here the king has come. And he only is able to have that because he comes from royal lineage. See, God worked in Israel through Abraham. He worked through David. He worked through his people. He worked through that nation. And here is the Savior, the Messiah, coming from that nation as God promised Jesus Christ. He has cred. He has credentials. It's a good thing we don't, ha- we don't have that anymore, right? We don't worry about credentials with people. I mean, if you wanted to run for president and you had no college degree or you didn't have a lot of money or you weren't good at business, you'd get in no problem, right? No. I mean, you have to, Harvard Law Degree, I'll tell you how many Harvard Law Degrees there are that have been presidents, and also also people that have been um, on the Harvard Law Review. I mean, there's just, just this pattern you have to follow to be in these kind of places. You've got to have some credibility. You've got to have some pedigree. And you think, oh, pedigree doesn't matter? Name doesn't matter? Well, we'll see in 2016 when we have a Bush and a Clinton running against each other how much name recognition and pedigree matters. Who knows? That's low politics. Who knows what it's going to be? But but it does make us question, yes, pedigree matters. See, Jesus is not just a rabble-rouser. Jesus has credentials. He comes from the line of David. He deserves to be in this place. What's going on and go on in the genealogy? And uh, I think it's really important to look at the differences. There are two genealogies in the Gospels. One in Matthew that starts the book of Matthew, and then the one in Luke that is in chapter 3. And there are differences between these two genealogies. And a lot of people um, will say, oh, here is the contradictions in the Bible. No, I don't think so if you look more carefully here. In fact, the, the differences are because, uh, first of all, I'm going to look at um, look at where uh, Joseph, the son of um, Eli, that's how you pronounce it, Eli, or Heli, and in Matthew's account, it says that Jesus, the, son, the um, son of Joseph, the son of Jacob. So why are there two different grandfathers here? The key word in this passage is right here, as was supposed, in parentheses. See, there is a uniqueness in Jesus, a uniqueness unlike anything else. He was born of a virgin. 
And whenever someone you want to talk about their lineage, you didn't want to talk about it through the mother. You wanted to talk about it through the father. So here they're talking about to the father, but they're saying, well, Joseph really isn't the father. God is the father, as supposed. So the grandfather really is Mary's father, not Joseph's father. That is why I believe, like many commentators, Matthew's genealogy is through um, Joseph, while Luke's genealogy is through Mary. And when we see the differences is uh, the line all the way until we get to David is different in Luke than it is in Matthew. We see that it comes from Nathan, the third son of um, David, versus Solomon, the first son of David from Bathsheba. And that is the difference in the break. And then we have the same from David all the way to Abraham into those two genealogies. Okay? Why is that important? Well, it's important because Mary's line is very anonymous. Very anonymous people until we get to David. People that are not mentioned in the Bible almost anywhere else. And I think it fits into Luke's pattern. Luke is about anonymous people. He is about picking people out that don't have popularity. He uses names of Samaritans, tax collectors, sinners, women as eyewitnesses, and the poor. And he gives them names. You see, when we look at the book of Luke, as we look at it through this semester, we are going to see that Jesus comes to all of humanity. Every single person. Even people that are insignificant, that aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. He gives significance to them. All types of people. Also, we see that this is revolutionary. That Jesus comes from humans. That he comes from a woman. One argument that often came to me in college against the Gospels and against Jesus say, oh, this is just borrowing on Greek thinking. The idea of a God coming to earth as a man. Okay? That is just, that's Greek thinking. Well, actually, this is revolutionary thinking for the Greeks. And what Luke is writing to the Greeks is crazy. That actually, Jesus would be fully man? No way. A God can't be fully man. That was against Greek and pagan thinking. And here Jesus is coming from people, from this lineage, growing in a woman. And that would have surprised the Greeks, that a guy would be fully man. A revolutionary thought. Another observation that makes it different. You guys are bearing with me good. Okay, This is genealogy. I know it's not very exciting, but do it. We're getting there. Okay, doing good. So Matthew um, stops at Abraham. And Luke goes beyond Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of all Israel. And then when you go above Abraham, you get the fathers of other nations. You see, Luke is saying that Jesus is not just the father of Israel. He's not coming just from them. He's coming from Adam, the first man, over all nations. Not just Jews, but Gentiles too, over all of those. And he goes all the way back to Adam. Now you see, Adam then, therefore, is the representative of all people. He is the ancestor of man. He is the first person. 
And we all spring from Him. Both the good and the bad. My girls and I, we have constant conversations on this about sin and how it's totally unfair that Adam, because of his sin, we are all sinners too. And the conversation usually works like this. I go, um, Ellie Morgan, if you were the first person, would you have sinned? Would you have done it? And I go, of course not, Dad. I would have been just fine. And then we talk about some actions that they've had in their life. And, okay, well, maybe not. You see, Adam represents us all. All of what we have done. And the corruption that we all have received. And I think it's very unique that Luke sandwiches this genealogy in between Jesus getting baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit coming down and God the Father saying, this is my son. And then the story afterwards is about his temptation. You see, it goes from Adam to temptation. This is an argument that Bach makes and other commentators. and I tend to agree with them. The reason genealogy goes backwards, which it usually goes, you know, from the beginning to the end, rather than not from, you know, it goes from, you know, like Matthew's story, it goes, you know, all the way from starting with Abraham down. Here, um, sorry, it starts with Joseph. Sorry, we're trying to get this right. It starts with that backwards, and it goes backwards in this story. It ends with God. Why does it end with God and Adam? My argument is this, is that it ends with that because it transitions into his temptation So the question goes, what man can face the temptation without being, falling into sin? And I would argue this, that Jesus was the one that is facing temptation, that faced temptation and did not fall into it, like the first man of Adam. You see, Jesus is the perfect man. He is the perfect human. He is the one that was able to do what Adam was not able to do. And then I go back to my girls and say, here, Jesus is the one that was not able to be tempted. You know, it's not fair that we inherited Adam's sin, but it also isn't fair that we inherited Jesus' righteousness. You see, we needed Jesus to enter the story. We needed him to be fully man in order that he would stop the cycle of sin among us, that he would stop the curse upon mankind, that he would show a breaking in that lineage, that he would be the perfect man and take it upon himself and stop the curse of Adam. The key verse in Luke is this. It's Luke 19.10. If you want to memorize any verse in the book of Luke, this is the one to memorize. If you want to see what holds it all together, I would say this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You see, this perfect man, Jesus, was the one that came in and saved a lost humanity. Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you're a person that twitches when you hear the word sin and says, what's with you Christians and guilt and all this? It's not that bad. I would argue the genealogy shows something different. When we do get to the famous names, 
Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. The heroes of Israel, right? The famous names. The ones that are good. What picture do we have of these people? Well, one of them is an adulterer and a murderer. One of them is a fornicator. One's a deceiver. One's an habitual liar. These are the heroes of Israel. This is what has come of man. This is what Jesus has come to break. And that is why these men, these individuals, these family, many of them repented and said, I trust in God. And I trust that a Messiah will come, a Savior for my seed, that will save us wicked and lost generation. And here he has come, Jesus Christ. It's so funny. I love looking at my parents, looking at my grandparents and saying, man, they are dysfunctional. Man, my parents are messed up. Look at what they do. The truth is, when I turn the magnifying glass on myself, and when my kids get older and turn it on me, I'm going to realize that I am passing down sin to them. That I am messed up. That I am screwed up. That it's just not my parents. It's not just my grandparents. That if I really look honestly, it is also on me. I watched a documentary uh, just a couple weeks ago. And it was also about a guy that has family credentials. One that says he's come to save the lost. And one that people worship and praise. And uh, this guy that I watched a documentary on is uh, Kim Jong-un, the ruler of North Korea. People worship that guy. They bow in front of him. They have pictures of him everywhere. You know? They praise him. He's got the credibility, right? He comes from the family line. He helps the people. He saves the lost. Right? Why should we not just worship him? Come on, anyone that's popular, anyone that uh, has people to follow him, they, they could be just as great. This is what I want you to look at as we look through the book of Luke. Is Jesus one worthy to be praised and honored and worshipped and to follow? You know, King Jong-un, he rules one of the poorest countries in the world. Three million people died of starvation just 15 years ago. He sends those who rebel against him to concentration camps. He lives in luxury He has the largest cognac collection in the world. And he lets others sacrifice themselves for him. But when we look at Luke, and we look at the Son of Man, the Son of God, we see one that became poor. We see one that did not cast off rebels, but dined with them, and ate with them, and loved them. We see one that didn't say, lay your down your life for me, but lay down his life for us. Is this the Son of Man, the Son of God, the one with the credentials to be one that is worthy to be worshipped, one that is worthy to be praised, one that has come 
to save the lost and to save humanity. Let's find out together. Let's go through Luke and see, does this man deserve that? And I would argue he does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. And uh, this is the way that you have worked in your world. You have worked through your people in Israel. And through them you have sent the Messiah, Jesus. The perfect man. The one that was able to do what we cannot. So that we can cling not to Adam, but we can cling to him for our righteousness. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, as we partake this morning, let us realize that the thing that gives us worth and value is not the blood that runs through our veins from our fathers and from our grandfathers and from our genealogy, but the blood that saves us, that gives us worth, is the blood that was sacrificed on the cross. A new lineage, a new genealogy, a new family to be grafted in. If you would say, I need to be grafted into that family, then please come forward. If you're not there yet, this isn't a Presbyterian table, an Emmaus Row table. This is for those that say, I need that. I need that perfect man, Jesus, to come into my life. Then come and partake. There are some, um, some prayers here. Um, for those that are not partaking, I encourage you to read that. For those that are um, partaking, we go this side on this side and over on this side over here. And there's bread and you take it and you come back to your seat. There's white grape juice on the outside. There's red wine in the middle. There is um, gluten-free wafers there too if you need that. If you have kids that are not partaking in communion at this point in time, we'd love to pray for them uh, and do that. Well, let's prepare our hearts, shall we?